Hey, this is Dave Infante. Welcome to Vine Pairs Tap Lines, a weekly interview series with brewing icons, industry insiders, and outspoken experts about the United States' most beloved and best-selling beers. It's modern American history, one beer at a time. There are over 9,700 breweries in the country these days, Tap Lines listener. It's a lot. Some say it's too many. This wasn't always the case. As historian Dave Burkhart told us in a previous episode, the notion of small, local, independent breweries churning out high-quality beers to match the culinary care of the slow foods movement was pretty much unheard of when Fritz Maytag took a controlling stake in San Francisco's Anchor Brewing Company in 1965. You should definitely go check out that episode if you haven't yet. It's called How America's First Craft Brewery Was Reborn. The episode you're about to hear stems directly from that rebirth. You'll hear Maytag's name a lot, which is no surprise given we're headed back to the Bay Area in the 1970s, but that era in Northern California was a cosmic craft brewing gumbo full of wide-eyed acolytes of full-flavored beer who would go on to varying degrees of fame and fortune in the years to come. So the other name you're going to hear on today's episode may not be so familiar. Jack McAuliffe, founder of Sonoma's New Albion Brewing Company, which, despite its brief, tiny operation, had an outsized influence on the craft brewing luminary set to emerge from the region. That brings us to our guest, Ken Grossman, a one-time home-brewing shop owner who would go on to found a little brewery in Chico, California called Sierra Nevada Brewing Company. He's joining us to tell the tale of Sierra Nevada's earliest days and how the disparate influences of Jack McAuliffe and Fritz Maytag helped him figure out how to keep his fledgling brewery alive and thriving. It's Ken Grossman, it's Sierra Nevada Pale Ale, it's the most important craft brewery you've never heard of, and it's all right here, right now, on Vine Pairs Tap Lines. I am one state away from Sierra Nevada's beautiful Malt Disney World in Mills River, North Carolina. I'm, of course, recording here at, uh, at, at Tap Lines HQ in Richmond, Virginia, but I'm many states away from the man on the other end of the line who, uh, to true beer heads, needs no introduction, but he's going to get one anyway. Uh, I'm talking, of course, about Ken Grossman. Uh, Ken, thank you so much for, for joining Tap Lines today. Uh, totally my pleasure. Love to talk about beer and the history of, uh, of craft brewing and our, our business. And we are going to be talking history, but in the here and now, before we, we scroll the Tap Lines time machine back to, uh, to the late 70s, Ken, you're joining us from Chico today. Are you in? Are you in uh, this year not about a uh, home base? I am. I'm at the brewery today. I was uh, back in North Carolina the the last several days and uh, came back here and dove back into our new project we're working on. That's right. And you're going to be adding a ton of capacity with the new Can Do facility, which was reported. Uh, we're recording this in early summer 2023. I know that's a project that you guys have been been pushing to get over the finish line, and it's going to add a lot of capabilities to Sierra Nevada with Beyond Beer products, which uh, are a cool new direction for, for Sierra to be going and staying ahead of the curve. But that's the future. And like I said, we're here to talk about the past, Ken. So we're going to take us back, uh, you know, to a, to a period of time that was, um, you know, I think for, for students of the industry, for, for true enthusiasts or people who have, quote unquote, done the reading, uh, they're aware that the late 70s in Northern California were a, a formative moment for the entire industry as sort of um, Fritz Maytag had taken over uh, Anchor about a decade prior um, and was, you know, was starting to really get people to be a little bit more interested in this full flavored, uh, 
full flavored malty steam beer that he was putting out. I'd be more interested in general and where the beer was coming from and who was making it. And into that milieu uh, uh, entered um, a brewer that we're going to be talking about today that I know you crossed paths with uh, right around that time. Um, a man named Jack McAuliffe, who would, would go on to found um, a brewery that uh, uh, is called New Albion. And uh, despite not being one that's on the tip of everybody's tongue uh, in the here and now today in 2023, was nonetheless, um, you know, uh, incredibly catalytic in terms of kicking off uh, what we now come to, to recognize as the American craft brewing movement. So that is my long-winded lead-up question, Ken. And I'm going to shut up in a second because listeners are here to, to hear from you, not from me. They hear me every week. They don't need any more of me. Uh, Ken, take us, uh, take us, you know, back to, to Northern California in the, in the late seventies. Tell me, you know, what you were up to and how you got into, into this whole, uh, this whole micro brewing thing. And before micro brewing, I think it was, it was home brewing, wasn't it? Yeah. So yeah, I think I'll step back even, uh, another decade. So in the late sixties, yeah, uh, late sixties, uh, I, I grew up in, um, in, um, a uh, little uh, town in Southern California, at least little at the time. It's grown significantly since then. Um, and my neighbor, uh, from when I was just a, a quite young kid, um, my schoolmate in elementary school's dad was a very accomplished home brewer, home winemaker, uh, distiller. Uh, and so I was exposed to home brewing um, back in the early 60s. Mm-hmm. And then I started to make a little bit of beer home in 1969. And at that point in time, there was, you know, obviously no craft beer uh, and there was very little uh, really quality beer, at least being brewed in America. Um, the beers were, I, I wouldn't say quality, not not being bad quality, but uh, uh, interesting quality beers. Right. Um, beers were pretty much one style, um, you know, light lager styles, not a lot of variation. And, and pretty much every brewery was making about the same kind of liquid. Sure. Um, and, and so that was... Uh, my exposure started out uh, being exposed to homebrew and being exposed to uh, esoteric small brands from Europe as well as the, the U.S., uh, just seeing them in my friend's fridge and my friend's dad's fridge. And so I started to, to homebrew a wide range of styles, and I moved to Chico in 1972. Uh, I took all my homebrewing supplies with me. Uh, I enrolled in chemistry at the junior college. Uh, and then eventually got convinced by a neighbor that I should open a homebrew supply store in Chico because there was no uh, ingredients available and my neighbors were enjoying my beers and I would have to drive to uh, the Bay Area. There was a, a homebrew shop, a couple of them in Berkeley, and then uh, I'd go down and visit my mother. And there was uh, one of the very first um, big home beer supply stores down in Southern California yeah. uh, where, the, where the Maltos Falcons uh, actually started the, America's first homebrew club. And uh, so I was exposed to sort of the at least the, the cutting edge of home brewing back in the in the late 60s, early 70s. And then uh, I continued to perfect my home brewing, opened this homebrew supply store in 76 and then did make a pilgrimage to, uh, first to visit Fritz uh, down at the Anchor Brewery when he was still in the old facility and ended up buying a number of cases of old Foghorn, um, which were, you know, at that point, a, a very exceptional super distinctive beer. Um, mm. I had been a, I had been aware of uh, steam beer right when Fritz started bottling, which I don't think was until around 70 or, or so. He, he bought the brewery in 65, but he initially didn't bottle. 
Yeah, we and just I, had a uh, we just had Dave Burkhart, the uh, Anchor Brewing historian, on to Taplines yeah. a few episodes ago, and listeners may remember that that we talked through that as a key decision that Fritz made in that immediate aftermath of acquiring acquiring Anchor. So you had just gotten uh, you had just gotten a couple cases of that that newly bottled product. Yeah, he was only selling it at the brewery, and uh, yeah. it was uh, sold sold to me by him directly, and. Uh, it was in little, little small nip bottles. I remember, uh, and it, it was a amazing liquid for the for the time, and, and certainly was was way different than anything anybody else was brewing. Yeah. Um, so I, I saw Fritz. I think I was probably in seventy seven, uh, maybe seventy eight, and uh, then made a trip to New Albion and um, saw what Jack McCall was doing. And at that point in time, I thought, you know, this is really a exciting thing to do for a career. Uh, I'd been. Uh, a hobbyist brewer and owning the homebrew shop and I'd been working in bicycle shops to support myself, but thought as far as a career path, um, the bike shop would be something I knew and would be easy, but I, I felt if I didn't try to open my own brewery um, that I would probably regret it the rest of my life. Um, so I sold the homebrew shop, wrote a business plan in 1978, um, and after seeing what Jack had built, um, realized some of his pitfalls. Uh, he, he built a barrel and a half capacity brewery so roughly 45 gallons per batch and it was he and Susie Stern uh, running the business and they did everything I mean they did all the brewing they did the sales they did the bottling I and mean, everything was totally done by hand and actually I remember uh, on one of my trips to visit uh, uh, Jack uh, seeing his bedroom he lived above the brew house he had a little uh, pull down uh, one of those attic ladders and he would climb up there and, and sleep above the, the brewery um, in part, I'm sure to save money, but on part also probably because he could keep an eye on fermentations and whatnot. Uh, sure, throughout sure. The night. Really living it. Uh, yeah, yeah, he was really living it. Um, <laughs> so, I mean, at that time, uh, you know, Jack, I think it started in 77. And um, when we announced we were going to open a brewery and uh, the, the amount of brewers in America at that time, uh, was right about the low point. I think there were 43 or 44 breweries, uh, brewing companies. There were more breweries because some of the big breweries had multiple sure, uh, facilities. Sure. But ABI um, had so, just AB at that point had what eight, nine, maybe Schlitz was yeah. was building them as fast as they could. Of course, yeah. by that point, also Schlitz was was staring down the barrel of some some uh, some bad cost cutting consequences coming home to roost. Yeah. So they were yeah. their loss was AB's gain. But sorry to interrupt. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. No, so a completely different time. And, and we started to, um, I guess, have a little community of, uh, of the aspiring home brewers. And, and between uh, when Jack opened in, in 77 and we opened in 80, uh, there were six of us that were uh, sort of pioneering. Uh, and all of us were home brewers trying to go commercial uh, sure. uh, other than other than Jim Schluter, who uh, founded River City Brewing about that time in Sacramento. Uh, but there was Tom DeBacher, who was a fireman and home brewer who opened up in Novato. Uh, there was Cartwright Brewing up in Portland. Uh, there was Boulder Brewing Company. Uh, and we were all about at the same stage, uh, I think, in, in 1978. Maybe uh, DeBacher was in operations, but everybody else was just talking about and figuring out how to uh, build their breweries. And, you know, in that era, there was no equipment suppliers that were yeah. uh, out there. So we were all fabricating. And 
I remember the Boulder Brewing folks came and spent the night at my house while they were in the uh, construction and fact-finding um, mode. And uh, you know, we were, I, I guess, probably a little bit more fortunate. We had UC Davis quite close to us. And so I spent a lot of time down at the Davis Library and with Michael Lewis, who ran the brewing program. And then quite a few of his grad students as they were coming through the program would uh, give us input, advice. Um, they were working on their masters in brewing and, and, yeah. and you know, studied the industry as it was at that time. Uh, and so gave us some input as to sort of how to how to steer our company for success. And after, you know, looking at what Jack had done with such a small volume and, and he was struggling to make enough money to survive. Um, it really wasn't uh, a viable business plan at a barrel and a half, uh, even though he was commanding, I think at the time, close to a dollar a bottle, which was, you know, outrageously <laughs> expensive back in back in 1980. Yeah. Adjusted um, for inflation. That's something something like those twenty dollar four packs that you see some of the, right. the hot shot uh, small brewer nano breweries uh, putting out today. Yeah, but there was no marketplace that was receptive to that at the time. Right, so right. Uh, he had he had a struggle, and it was a novelty, and and so he immediately started to try to raise money, and uh, was unable to really put a business plan together that would attract investors. And and we were in the same boat. I mean, we wrote a business plan, and again, we we thought ten barrels, at least on paper, was a workable volume to support um, ourselves. I had a partner at the time, uh, Paul Camusi, and uh, the, the two of us, and we had one uh, one employee who did uh, sales and packaging and everything else that uh, was required to, to get the beer out the door. Um, and even at a 10 barrel size, on at least on our business plan, it showed we could make money. But when we took it to banks, they would look at it and say, you guys are nuts. Um, if they had studied the <laughs> They had studied the brewing industry. They would have seen that you know breweries were closing at a rapid rate from after prohibition was repealed uh, until the point when we wanted to open, and that was you know say down to forty three companies. And so from their standpoint, it was a horrible investment. Uh, said, none of us were able to borrow any bank money, so uh, right. everybody had to get financing from family and friends and personal uh, resources. And this is a moment when the when the beer industry is going through its most significant contraction really in the in the history of the american beer industry if you don't count prohibition obviously because that was not a contraction yeah. so much as a uh a regulatory action but um as regional breweries and local breweries uh you know struggle to compete with mostly with anheuser Busch to some extent schlitz um who have cracked the code on national advertising on building breweries with enormous economy of scale in markets that they uh, you know think are lucrative so as those breweries close their capacity is either being you know gobbled up by Anheuser-Busch or, or Schlitz and to some extent Miller obviously is uh once Miller gets acquired by Philip Morris and and they they roll out Miller Lite which we spoke about with uh, historian Maureen yep. Ogle on a, on a previous Taplines episode but Ken so you're in this this moment, you're going into the banks and you're saying, hey, this is our business plan. They're, they're saying, no way, go find money somewhere else. This is never going to work. But you're also looking at, you know, you've got Fritz who has, you know, uh, uh, sort of known as the gentleman brewer. Uh, he's interested and curious in turning Anchor around, very passionate about it. But he's also a Maytag, obviously. So he's got a little bit 
um, of a different, you know, financial arrangement than, than most entrepreneurs, uh, do, and certainly than you did at the time. And then you've got, you're looking at one of the other few examples that's in your immediate sphere, uh, in, in California at this time in the late seventies is, is Jack McAuliffe, who, as you've described and, and as, has been reported. And I think even Jack himself, uh, in, in accounts, you know, years later would say, you know, we weren't doing it the right way or we, you know, we were struggling to make money or, you know, sort of seeing the, the challenges that New Albion was facing. And you still were like, all right, let's do this thing with Sierra Nevada. I think I think we've got it. One barrel, maybe not 10 barrels. I think we can do it. Where did you get the confidence, man? Well, it was one of those uh, things where we, we thought that the fact there had been so much consolidation uh, in the industry that it really opened up uh, sort of the, the niche. And you know, California at the time was, uh, you know, a fairly progressive uh, place, uh, at least the Bay Area, certainly, um, with the, you know, cheese, uh, artisan cheese makers and coffee roasters and sure. artisan bread bakers and all these sort of craft-centric uh, um, uh, approaches to what had become very much commodities in, in our country. I mean, you know, Wonder Bread and, and you know, the, the homogenous beer scene and um, you know, wines that weren't very uh, interesting or exciting or of, of super high quality, all that was starting to turn around. So there was starting to be a movement of artisan uh, craftsmanship of, of sort of uh, historic uh, food and drink that was uh, coming back. So we saw that there was a, a growing level of appreciation of, of things that have substance and flavor and character. And so we, we thought, you know, we don't need to sell a lot of beer. We only need to sell a fraction of a percent of beer. Uh, and imports at that point were, uh, you know, uh, uh, available in most markets. There was a range of singles, um, you know, actually a pretty wide range uh, in some stores of individual bottles. There weren't a lot of, you know, major um uh, volume imported brands, but you could yeah. get a wide range. You could get a wide range of, of offerings we, back then. What are we talking about? Like the obviously Heineken, and then you know you got what Bex, Pilsner, Quell. Like w- what else are we talking about there? Um, you know Sam Smith. I mean, there, there were yeah. uh, a lot of British imports. Um, uh, Charlie Finkel at Merchant of Inn uh, had started to import uh, Eyinger and and a number of those brands uh, in that time as well. Gotcha. Uh, so you could you could go to a better liquor store and find you know fifty imported beers ranging from you know very esoteric styles for the time at least in the U.S. marketplace uh, to some of the more mainstream brands like the ones you mentioned Bex and, and Heineken. Sure. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, so people were exposed to, you know, different beers. If you were a beer fan at the time, you could experiment with the different beer styles other than American Light Lager. But again, certainly a small segment of the, the U.S. beer marketplace at the time. Yeah. Um, so, so we thought that, you know, an American made and, and, and obviously what Fritz was doing was starting to resonate. Um, my buddy who I mentioned in the beginning had, had uh, been a home brewer. Um, he got his hands on anchor steam right when they first started bottling um, anchor steam beer and shared it with us. And it was, you know, obviously a, a very unique and, and interesting offering compared to what else was being brewed in the U S and, and I remember there were still a few old holdouts, uh, Ballantine's um, India pale ale. Uh, you could still find, uh, I think brewed out of the Narragansett brewery uh, and it had character and flavor and was dry hopped. Um, so there were, you know, a, a few samplings of American beers that were of, uh, of note as far as being outside the, the norm. So we thought there was a, you know, a growing place for a small brewery that uh, 
hopefully had enough volume to support itself uh, as New Albion didn't. Um, and we just thought it was an opening and a, and a time and we were going to you know, be at the beginning of it. And uh, we were in a college town and, and you know, one of our um, thoughts was, you know, we could appeal to, you know, the graduating um, seniors. And, and uh, it actually worked out very much to our advantage of a lot of people came to Chico to go to school from the Bay Area, from L.A., from other cities. And having, you know, this hometown brewery that, uh, you know, we became part of the fabric of the community. Uh, people would drink our beer and then go um, back home to, to where they yeah, graduate yeah, yeah. growing up and and sort of have a love for Sierra Nevada. So it, it seeded the marketplace uh, as, as the college uh, kids graduated and, and went back home. And so we started to get a real Bay Area um, connection. Um, we got our beer in Chez Panisse as one of the, the first, um, sure, yeah. um, I guess, impressive retail restaurants to, to be selling a craft beer because they thought, you know, we were bottle conditioned, we were naturally brewed, uh, you know, it, it aligned with what their food sensibilities were. And after that happened, then we started to, you know, sort of be able to to show other restaurants and bars that, um, you know, we were a, a quality product and uh, belonged to be on, on tap lists. I mean, back in 1980, um, you know, most places that had draft beer would carry you know, one or two or maybe three uh, domestic brands and didn't have, right. you know, open taps. So the places we found uh, acceptance on draft was really more like the Irish bars where they were used to having, you know, a, a Guinness or a Murphy's or something uh, on tap. And so quite often had multiple taps at those accounts. And so we started to, uh, to get some traction there. And then there started to be in the early 80s, a few craft centric bars uh, that at least would have uh, a few craft beers uh, that were available. And it was, you know, it was Anchor. It was us. By by 81, New Albion had closed. So uh, they, sure. they left the scene. Uh, I, I think by 82, there were nine or 10 small brewers uh, in America. But uh, a few of the early ones had already gone. Cartwright was gone and mm-hmm. Debacher, Debacher was gone and, and New Albion was gone. So there was a a pretty rapid um, changing of the guard that happened for the first uh, you know, 10 years, really, where uh, brewers came and went just due to the challenges of, uh, of making beer uh, consistently, as well as selling beer and making money at it. So there was a lot of failures uh, those early years. Sure, sure. I want to talk a little bit, Ken. So, like, you know, uh, Sierra Nevada opens in 1979, and... Um, you know, you, you discussed sort of those early years. You won a, won a big account at Chez Panisse, which I'm sure at the time must have felt like you were riding high on top of the world. That's a big one. Uh, obviously, Alice Waters, extremely influential, uh, a Northern California restaurant that uh, they opened uh, or at the beginning of that decade, I think 1971 yeah. or so. But um, I want you, you mentioned earlier in, in the episode about, you know, sort of observing because you, I think, visited, uh, at least as reports show, you visited um, New Albion a couple times as you were sort of solidifying your business plan, that that, uh, that that business model that you took to the banks that they didn't want any part of, that I'm sure they're still kicking themselves at over to this day. But uh, uh, you mentioned sort of these pitfalls that you saw that, that, you know, Jack, working hard at this obviously has the passion for it, but it's just not going to go with the arrangement that he's got. And um, one of the things that we've already touched on is sort of this question of volume, right? Like it sounds like pretty quickly you became hip to the idea that, you know, there's maybe 
there are, there are savings that you can capture with economies of scale. If you're brewing at you know a larger volume, obviously ten barrels is not large compared to the big guys uh, then or now, but is big compared to to Jack uh, Jack's setup at New Albion. So that's one of the the pitfalls that you sort of saw him struggling with. What were what were the others? Was it like undercapitalization? Was it a marketing thing? Like, tell me a little bit about sort of like how you learned from from his pioneering sort of you know mm-hmm. going first and breaking the ice. Yeah, so none of us had any money. I mean, everybody was <laughs> seriously bootstrapped. Uh, every yeah, one yeah. of the the six six of us who opened up, um, nobody had any any backing. So it was all family and friends' money and. You know, at that time, too, I mean, that's when interest rates went to over 18 percent. And and so if you were even Whoa. able to borrow a borrow from a bank, I think they got to 21 percent, I think, in maybe one or, or so. Um, if you were able to borrow from a bank, uh, you know, with a floating kind of loan would have been almost impossible to, to repay. And so maybe some of the from people, under. Yeah, yeah. Wow. yeah, maybe some of the people did take some bank financing or, or maybe mortgage their houses or something. I don't know all the details of, of all of us, but it, it would not have been a good time to, to get much leverage on a, a business like that. Um, so yeah, no money, no marketing. None of us knew how to market. I mean, it was, if you had a POS, matter of fact, I don't have one in my office right now, but our early POS signs were hand painted. So we had, we had <laughs> little plaques we would hang in the pubs and they were all hand painted. Um, and they were sort of cool that way, but uh, of we, only course. Had, we only had like 10 accounts or so, so you could have somebody, um, you know, do, do the, do the work. Yeah, uh, yeah. But the, uh, you know, the challenges at 10 barrels were, were still enormous. Um, the original you know business plan we had was to brew, um, uh, 12 brews a month, um, and uh, 12, 10 barrel brews a month. And then if we thought we could grow the business was to expand up, up to uh, 2,500 barrels a year. So about uh, uh, 20, 24 brews a month. And that was our sort of our extent of our of our growth plan that was uh, baked into our uh, original business business plan. Um, the issue was that 10 barrels a month, we couldn't survive. Uh, or ten, actually, 10 barrels of brew, 12 brews a month. That was not enough volume to to cover costs, to, just to operate and live. And I, and I kept working a second job at a bike shop for the first year because mm. there was so, so little cash flow. So we rapidly realized we better expand now or we're going to go out of business. And we were watching, you know, our peers, uh, the guys at Boulder and that's the other ones I mentioned. Um, you know, everybody was in the same boat that, that uh, either you got to have another job, which the Boulder guys did. They were one of them was a college professor, and I can't remember what the other one did. But uh, and it was a hobby at that point; it wasn't your livelihood. And right. you know, for us, we had uh, you know pretty much gotten out of everything else we were doing, other than me working part time at the bike shop. And so, if we were going to survive as brewers, we better make more more beer. It's just uh, the the amount of things we didn't plan for in our business plan. You know, the costs. I, I had all these details as to you know kilowatts of, of power to brew a batch of beer and therms and gas rates and all these things that I thought I was being very smart and calculated down to the uh, to the nth degree. None of that held true. I mean, everything cost <laughs> way more. Um, you know, on, on paper, it, seemed, it, yeah, on paper <laughs> it seemed to make sense. But in reality, uh, I was totally wrong in, in all these things. And uh, so it was almost immediately uh, all hands on deck to figure out how to expand. Uh, and, and we, you know, we said it to ourselves numerous times. We don't grow. We're going to die. And um, so we, 
we doubled the fermenting capacity and and uh, that um, got us to a point where you know we were at least able to take some money home and then we pretty quickly said we got to grow again and in uh, I think 83 uh, end of 82 beginning of 83 I went to Germany and bought a 100 barrel brew house that uh, I had found through uh, some contacts we had uh, actually in the brewing industry um, uh, Garrett at St. Stansbury you had family in Germany in the town that made Hoopman brew houses Mm-hmm. And uh, or the next town over, so uh, they connected with them, and they found a, a used hundred barrel brew house, and so we we bought the brew house and shipped it back to Chico, and I wrote another business plan and shopped that around, and still nobody would loan us any money. They're like, you know, you're making, <laughs> you know, you're you're barely profitable, you're making almost no money, yeah. and you want to you want to borrow a million dollars. I think was what we were asking for, and. Uh, they just laughed at us again and said, there's no way, you know, you're, this, this is not enough of a business to, to invest in. And so we actually kept the equipment that I bought in Germany in wooden crates and we continued to figure out how to m- make more beer. And um, so we added more fermenters and we were in this little metal, 3,000 square foot metal building we leased and uh, in a little industrial park. Uh, sort of in, a, not in a Chico there? In Chico, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, not not a real I mean, metal metal Quonset buildings, uninsulated, uh, you know, summer heat and all that. I mean, it was winter cold. Not, yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, not the ideal place. But luckily, there were a couple of uh, warehouses around us, and so we were able to rent another warehouse when we had a little bit of extra uh, cash flow, and then add some more tanks, and then we actually started going with outdoor um, uh, conical tanks that we could. Uh, stubbed through the wall of the of the metal building when we left that building it was like swiss cheese there were holes everywhere um, <laughs> walls ceilings stacks running out vents he must um, have been popular with the landlord yeah <laughs> well he came at one point and, and was shocked and and he said uh, you know, I, i'm gonna double your security deposit which was i don't know twenty five hundred dollars or something and and we said okay fine um and, and and we that allowed us just to leave at the end. So I'm, I'm not sure. Uh, <laughs> and for us, it was a hell of a good deal. For him, I yeah, don't think so. But, uh, that works but, out. Uh, well, yeah. wait, but Ken, so I want to, the equipment piece of the puzzle is something that really interests me because I know at this time, you know, we think about now when you're starting a brewery in 2023 or really any time in the, in the past 10 to 15 years, there was a pretty well-established route to, you know, sort of getting the equipment you need to build out a, operational brewing facility, right? Like you can, you can look on online brokerage listings. You can, there are places that'll manufacture it new for you, anything you need, right? From, from small all the way up to a, to a, to a massive brew house. Of course, that was not the case when, when you, when Jack, when your other peers in Northern California at the time were starting up. So when you say you expanded fermenting capacity, when you say you rented this other warehouse, where was the stuff coming from? Where was your equipment coming? Besides Germany, obviously, you went to Germany and, and bought some right. stuff. But uh, excluding that piece, where was the stuff coming from? Well, the initial fermenters, I welded myself. So I, I enrolled in, in welding at the junior college. And um, they had uh, you know all the equipment I, I needed because I didn't own it at the time initially. And we bought welders later. But um, So I had a, a company uh, who made... Uh, agricultural uh, stainless steel tanks uh, roll up some uh, stainless for me and uh, I 
climb inside and welded all the tanks up myself for the for the first couple of rounds of them. But we leaned pretty heavily on the dairy industry. Um, you know, there were a lot of small dairies around the uh, Northern California, up into Oregon and Washington, that had surplus tanks and pumps, and these dairies had gone out of business, and, and they had a milking operation with a, mm-hmm. a milk, milk storage tank and, and a you know, processed pump and pipe, and, and so we grabbed a lot of that stuff. And then as we grew to a certain point, I, I bought Fritz Maytag's bottle filler when he did his expansion uh, to Petrol Hill, um, and it actually, Fritz had bought it used out of the Siebensbury in Chicago, um, and one of Al Capone's reported um, uh, breweries that was was controlled. Concerns, by, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and so we bought it when he upgraded, and then actually I sold that to the Mad River Brewers uh, up in uh, the Humboldt area, and I think they're still using it. So uh, that um, that was a nineteen, I think, nineteen fifty two <laughs> bottle filler. That and thing still, made the rounds. <laughs> yeah, still filling bottles. So. So we started to find some cast off stuff. Uh, the malt mill I bought actually came out of the the uh, George, I think it was George Ott Brewery in uh, Pennsylvania. Um, and it was from 19, I think it's 1902. <laughs> the, Whoa. The, uh, yeah. And it had been in, you know, in the brewery since before Prohibition. And and uh, it was, uh, you know, funky. Um, it, it had babbitted bearings, which are the bearings that they put in Model A's that are cast out of tin, <laughs> tin and lead. And I found a Model A rebuilder to, to uh, re-pour <laughs> the bearings um, for this malt mill. So you're just um, cobbling so, together like this island of misfit, you know, yeah. uh, equipment here. How were you hearing about it? I assume like you were talking to Jack, you might've been talking to the folks at Boulder, talking to the Cartwright, you know, like I, was there kind of a network of guys who would get on the phone and be like, Hey, I know you're looking for this over here. I just saw one of these. Like, how were you finding out? Cause like you weren't going around to every single dairy farm in Northern California, were you? <laughs> yes. Um, <laughs> On the dairy side, I you know this was pre-internet, so you couldn't like you know do a Google search right, and stuff. Right. <laughs> so I would go. I, I was remembering this the other day for a talk I gave. So I would go to the the phone company, and there used to be you know the you know one phone company in the country, and um, they had yellow pages for the whole U.S. So I would go through, uh, sit and go through the yellow pages, looking at feed stores, and uh, I came up with a pretty good plan where I'd go to a a town and asked the feed store, if the, you know, where the old dairies were in the area. And they'd say, uh, you know, so-and-so up the road there, he used to milk cows. You might talk to him. So I would actually go drive and knock on doors and, and say, you got any old pumps or pipe or uh, tanks or anything? And, and um, so I picked up a bunch of it that way. But, but one thing, uh, you know, when I started to get engaged in the U.S. brewing industry, uh, Fritz Maytag actually encouraged me to join um, – the Brewers Association of America, which is the forerunner of what is now the the BA, um, which, you know what Charlie Papazian had founded as, uh, right. um, you know the the homebrew and, and and initial craft brewing um, uh, trade trade group. Yeah. Um, but the old BAA had been founded um, during the war, um, and it was founded because small brewers at the time during World War II couldn't get uh, bottle caps. Uh, the tin plate that was being used for making bottle caps was one of those uh, commodities that got rationed uh, mm-hmm. for the war effort. And the big brewers were able to get bottle caps, but the little guys didn't have the clout to uh, you know, convince a manufacturer that uh, you know, they were worthy to, to, to get bottle cap material. Sure. 
Um, and so the BAA was brought together and it was, um, you know, essentially all the small brewers in America that had survived prohibition and were now trying to, you know, keep their businesses going through to the war. And um, so Fritz said, you should join this organization. It's really the place where America's small brewers come together. So I joined that, I think, in 83 and went to my first uh, convention in Florida. And there I met, you know, the commercial brewing industry. Up until that point, you know, I knew, um, you know, obviously knew the the few small brewers that were in America. And and Fritz would have parties um, every year at the, at the brewery. And he would invite pretty much all the small brewers in America to his party. And I remember, you know, being there, the anchor band would be playing. They had a, a rock and roll band uh, with brewery employees. And uh, Jack would be out on the fire escape roasting uh, Sonoma sausages that uh, he, he picked up at one of the hometown artisan uh, sausage makers. So I, I have some fond memories of some of those parties going uh, going into the night with the band wow. playing and us hanging out drinking beer together. That's um, so lovely, I, yeah. When I got hooked up with the BAA, um, so that was a place where suppliers uh, also went. And uh, again, all those suppliers and small brewers, there weren't a lot of uh, either, um, but the maltsters would be there. And, and a lot of these were family-owned uh, breweries and family-owned businesses, um, you know, the Rar family and uh, a, a number of, of the supply chain people that I got to meet, um, you know, the, the CEOs of the owners and founders uh, would go to those conferences. So you started to build relationships with, um, you know, the, the legacy brewing industry. So all the old um, post-prohibition or pre- and post-prohibition breweries that were in the country at the time. And mm-hmm. then also the, the the legacy suppliers. So the the hops and malts and bottle caps and all that. So you got a direct connection with, with the CEOs. And so that really helped bridge that knowledge gap. And, and then it was easy to go call somebody up and say, you know, do you have, I'm looking for uh, some lab equipment. Do you have any old lab equipment that may be you know, suitable for a small brewer to right, get right. their hands on? Um, so I started to build that kind of uh, relationship and the big brewers um, um, and the Coors family were very gracious and, and said, uh, you know, come use our research library. They actually offered to make fermenters for us at one point in time in the 80s. Uh, really? At their, yeah. They, they, of course, I don't think they still do, but they had their own tank fabrication shop. For and, a long uh, time. Yeah, 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 yeah. And they had uh, had offered to build fermenters for us. But um, out of our budget, um, we couldn't afford new new fermenters at that point. But Yeah, um, yeah. Luxury. When we, yeah. yeah. When we eventually did... Um, uh, we started to use some uh, of the U.S. manufacturers that Fritz actually had recommended. So, uh, DCI company in St. Cloud, Minnesota, built our first fermenters, and uh, Fritz had a relationship with them from the Maytag dairy farm that uh, his family had founded. Um, so they were buying milk tanks and cheese tanks and that from DCI. Mm-hmm. And so we did. As we grew, we did start to you know buy some new equipment uh, from U.S. manufacturers that specialized in custom kind of uh, building. But, but to your earlier point, so no, you could not buy a brew house for a 10-barrel brew house, at least not in this country. Maybe you could have had somebody in Germany or the UK build one for you, um, but it would have been so cost prohibitive for any of us right. that it was really out of the question that we could actually buy purposely built um, equipment back in the really early days. It was just mm-hmm. uh, well out of anybody's budget. Uh, what time ta- around where are we talking about here? Is this, it sounds like we've scrolled forward a little bit to the mid eighties when you started establishing. Mid-80s, yeah. yeah. Mid eight, mid eighties. Uh, we were starting to, to grow. And I said, I bought this 
brew house in Germany and couldn't install it. And we were so just sitting uh, in boxes, sitting in a big, oh, wooden, big wooden crate. I can send you a picture of us standing in front of it. Uh, I would love uh, that. It sat there for like four years. Uh, oh, until we, man. And, and so I figured out how to, uh, well, we, we were very fortunate. The San Francisco examiner uh, ran a, a multiple page color article about the brewery that's making Chico famous. And it was uh, Paul and I sitting out on some kegs out in a, a field with our beers in front of us. And, and um, that gave us just this huge shot in the arm as far as just the market awareness. And uh, right about the same time, some of the grocery chains in the Bay Area were starting to uh, catch on. You know, they were starting to stock a lot of boutique wineries. And, and so they had a you know, a beer section. Uh, and uh, I don't know that it was a, s- a separated craft beer section, but they had a beer section that probably had us with imports at the time. Yeah. And, yeah. Um, and so they started advertising, um, you know, much to our, our shock sometimes. There'd be an ad that they would run, you know, Sierra Nevada Pale Ale, four ninety nine six pack or whatever it was back in the day. Yeah. And all of a sudden our sales just took off and, so then we really had to figure out how to make more beer. And so I increased the size of the kettle to, I think, 16 and a half, 17 barrels. I bought some new open tanks for the first time, uh, new t- buying new tanks from JV Northwestern of Oregon, 35-barrel uh, tanks. I put four of those in, and then I started adding these outdoor uh, storage tanks as well. And so we just started really cranking the, the little 10-barrel brewery that could uh, that had been designed for thir- you know 2,500 barrels or so. We got up to over 10,000 out of that um, brew house, and wow. and I sold I sold that to Mad River as well with the the bottle filler, and they brewed on it for the next 30 years, um, or or almost 30 years. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Holy and, smokes! And I, and I got it back, and and all by hand with a canoe <laughs> with a, with a canoe paddle. I mean, there was no automation at all. You would Come on. dump them dump them all in, and you stir it in with a canoe paddle. And they brewed, <laughs> I think we figured they brewed 23,000, let's see, was that 23,000 batches, something like that. Um, so wow. it, it's, it's brewed hundreds of thousands of barrels on this little primitive system. Um, and uh, yeah, I, I brewed on it for eight years and then they brewed on much longer. Yeah. Holy smokes. That is uh, getting your money's worth on that yeah. equipment. So, so by, by 1987, we had, had gone over 10,000 barrels. And at that point in time, you know, we had enough of a track record. We could finally get an SBA loan. And so we uh, <laughs> we had uh, some uh, support on the building from uh, the contractor and my partner's mother. And then uh, we borrowed a million dollars, I think, from the SBA. And, and that was enough to, to build sort of where we are today, the start of where we are today on, on 20th Street. So that's eight years in is when the SBA finally deigned to, yeah. to issue a loan. <laughs> yeah. Um, oh, actually, ten years when we started the business. Um, sure, paper, yeah. But, yeah, right, right, years right. Of brewing. And so when I designed that brewery, I mean, we were at I say a little over ten thousand barrels when we designed it, and we still didn't have a lot of money. Um, and so we we picked up a small piece of property, less than two acres, and designed the brewery to fill that that spot up. And you know, at that point, I think Fritz was probably at close to forty thousand barrels. And so I designed, uh, you know, our future expansion uh, plans to get to 60,000 barrels, uh, which at the time seemed like a really lofty goal. I mean, nobody had done that. And, you know, Boston Beer was it was in business at that point, but they were, you know, totally different business model. Uh, all contract brew. They didn't contract, brew any of, their, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Any, any of their own beer at all. Uh, I think Pete's 
Wicked Ale maybe had started up by then as well, and same deal, contract brewing. But nobody had really gone uh, and built a you know a brand and a, a plant um, to do sixty thousand barrels. Mm. So, so that seemed like you know that's that's the way out there in the future as to when we would ever get that big if ever. And I think I was quoted as as saying, uh, you know, I think there's a, a market uh, in the U.S. for maybe fifteen thousand barrels of hoppy beer. <laughs> so I can't remember what year I said that. I haven't found the quote, but I do remember saying that that, that was yeah, uh, yeah. going to be Nirvana if we could ever grow that big and if we could find enough people to uh, to enjoy hoppy beer. So well, it was uh, beyond your wildest imagination at that time. There just wasn't uh, any indication that it would grow that big. No. That, you know, yeah, yeah, wow. No. So anyway, so we designed for sixty thousand barrels, and I think our first year operating there, we brewed about twenty thousand. Our next year, we were almost 35,000. Uh, the year after that, I think we were close to uh, 50,000. And then we were out of capacity again. Up, and up, that, up, happened. Up, up. Yeah, yeah, um, that happened really rapidly. And uh, and, and we uh, didn't have, I said we had less than two acres of land, so we didn't have any room to expand. And we started to, thankfully, in our, in our little area, there was vacant lots around us. So we started to to buy an acre when we could afford it and attach it onto our, our facility and then add a fermentation room or a loading dock or some more warehousing. And and so we were able to grow that way for really the, the next uh, almost 30 years of um, just acquiring little bits of land as we could afford it. Um, generally, they didn't have buildings on them. We bought some that did have some buildings on them and, and repurposed them. So now we've growing to almost a 40 acre campus here in Chico. Mm -hmm. um, and then, you know, decided at some point that shipping beer from California to New York and Texas and Florida and all the Eastern areas at some point was going to be not a, a wise thing to be dependent on just energy costs, carbon footprint, um, all those things weighed on us that uh, we better, if we're going to be a national brand, we better think about, uh, you know, brewing in, in a, a couple different coasts. So uh, we added the brewery in North Carolina, but uh, uh, well, 2012, we broke ground out there. How many acres is that? 230. Yeah. So dramatically larger than the Chico. Yeah. Uh, the Chico but but we're, you know, we're only developed on about 30 acres. So the rest of it's just still wild. And, and um, you know, it's, it's a beautiful location. Like I said, at the beginning of the episode here, yeah. I, I've been out there and, uh, it is, it lives up to the billing. It's, you guys have done a tremendous job with that. It's really something. Yeah, we have old. goats and sheep and, and chickens and all that out there too. So we got a little farming operation and gardens, uh, along with the brewery. Very cool. Ken, as we, as we, I'm looking at the clock here and I could talk to you for another three hours, but I bet you got better stuff to do. And I know our listeners are anxious to hear um, sort of us bring it all back home. I'm curious, by the time, you know, you get to the late eighties, you're buying up parcels of land in Chico, you're, this thing is starting to work. It's not nearly the scale that it is, of course, in the present day, but it, you know, you're, you're, you're proving that there's a viable business here. And then, you know, just a moment ago, we were talking about Sierra Nevada as a national brand. And it's one of, one of the few national craft beer brands that sort of was able to establish and, and, and hold on to that, um, that footprint and that stature and, and doing it, uh, all while staying independent and not, you know, uh, uh, being acquired by a strategic partner, or taking on private equity money or whatever the case may be. Um, but that trajectory is dramatically different than the one, you know, that we opened this conversation with. And I want to revisit, uh, if you'll indulge me, 
you know, we mentioned briefly that I think it was 1982 or maybe 1981 that New Albion and Jack McAuliffe, uh, the, the brewery closed. Like there wasn't, you know, it just for all the reasons that we've discussed over the course of this conversation, it just wasn't working. Um, in 1981, 80, early 80s there, you're at Sierra Nevada, you're still fledgling. You're still be well upstream of any of this, you know, sort of validating success you would have by the end of that decade. And of course, in the next one to come, um, tell me a little bit about, you know, sort of when you heard the news or when, you know, if you were talking to Jack at that time or, you know, New Albion closes, what does that mean for your business? Do you worry? Are you, I, I, I presume you might be a little upset. Like, tell me, take me there. Like, tell me what that, what the significance was. Yeah, I say by then, um, two or three uh, small brewers had already closed. So the first wave mm. was already starting to to shake out. You know, there were a couple things that we, you know, we pointed to as to why we didn't think we were going to be in the in the same boat. I mean, yep. you know, we had a bigger, uh, you know, a bigger business uh, to start. So uh, we knew that, uh, you know, Jack's one and a half barrel design was pretty flawed and, and he admitted it. I mean, he told us, yeah, that, right. you know, you can't, you can't survive off one and a half barrel. So uh, we knew if he didn't raise money, uh, he was going to not be able to continue on and he was not successful in raising money. Um, and again, going back to that time, you know, he didn't have probably family and friends that had the, the wherewithal and or the, the faith that he could figure out how to pull this off. And, mm-hmm. and so therefore probably didn't, um, didn't get much investment from family and friends. And, um, I, I mean, and, and we struggled, uh, as I mentioned, um, you know, we couldn't get money to expand, um, when we bought that new brew house and, and we did go, you know, talk to banks. We talked to strategic partners, talked to some venture people at the time. Um, you know, one of them was, um, uh, I won't say the brand, but one of the water companies, uh, was interested in giving us some money, but they wanted 51%. And um, we were, and, and Jack probably ran into the same thing that anybody willing to sort of take a flyer on this industry would want a majority for their investment. They wouldn't want to be a minority partner and mm-hmm. and w- watch their money get piddled away without any ability to, to sort of steer the ship. Sure. Um, so it, it was just hard to raise money then. And, uh, you know, for us, uh, you know, we had a, a growing business, so we grew every year. Um, so we just realized that we needed to figure out how to, grow uh, at a rate that we could manage with cash flow. So um, pretty much all of our, our growth was you know, plowed every penny back in that we we made. And, and you know, I think uh, some of my peers were better capitalized that were coming along, Red Hook being one of them I can think mm. of, and then Wid- mm-hmm. Widmer and a few of these other breweries did have more access to capital. And, and in some cases, it, it probably hurt them um, because they – um, you know, they took the money, but maybe didn't build um, as much of a war mentality, uh, a, a cost-cutting, um, do-it-yourself Strapping. attitude. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, um, I mean, one of the first things I bought was a lathe, and I would buy all these old stainless steel fittings at a scrapyard down in the Central Valley, and I'd cut the pipe up, cut the ends off, remachine them, you know, weld them back on myself, and, and so I, I had to, you know, out of just necessity learn how to really be scrappy. And yeah. um, I think a few of my peers, uh, you know, came from maybe the marketing side of the business. Um, I, I think um, Paul Shipman from Red Hook was, you know, he was into co- coffee and wine 
but on the sales and marketing side, not on the production side. And, mm-hmm. and I was, I was focused on making beer. And, and um, so there was a disconnect there, I think from some of my peers, as far as what was important, uh, you know, quality control and consistency was one of the things that most of the small players struggled with. And uh, we were pretty buttoned down for our, our time and scale. You know, we had a laboratory, we did plating, we propagated our own yeast. I mean, a lot of the things we were wow. doing were, were uh, I wouldn't say cutting edge, but they were what you needed to do as a small brewer to make sure you had uh, consistency and quality in your beer. Yeah, I think yeah. some, of our, some of our peers missed, missed that. Either they didn't have the, um, the money, equipment, or knowledge. Uh, you know, again, we leaned on UC Davis. So we had a, a, a lot of uh, support and, and um, there was a big resource there that we could mine for how to make consistent beer. So I think that was part of why we, we thought we could uh, you know, su- sort of succeed where others had failed. And then um, something about our brand just seemingly resonated. I mean, the Grateful Dead sort of glommed on to uh, Sierra Nevada Pale Ale. And so the, the Deadhead concerts, every time where the Dead would play, we'd get a call from a distributor saying, oh, I need you know two pallets of beer. The Dead are coming. And uh, and we had nothing to do with that. It was just yeah, a, yeah. A, a, great, a great coincidence that the, the Deadheads love Pale Ale. Um, and, and so we had these things that were sort of, uh, you know, happening with the brand that we didn't have to drive. Um, we didn't have any marketing money. We didn't know marketing at all for years and years. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and, and so some of that stuff was just sort of fortunate uh, timing and coincidence. And the and some uh, the of it beer. was baked into the business model from the beginning. I mean, you, you took the yeah. learnings of what you saw in New Albion and you yeah. tried to future proof the business. So the things that were that Jack was struggling with would not be things that you guys were struggling yeah. with when you opened up. Yeah. Yeah. Gotcha. And then, you know, Fritz was a, was a pretty good, um, uh, beacon for the industry at the time. I mean, he was, yeah. uh, um, you know, he got a fair amount of publicity and, and he was, uh, you know, sort of breaking ground for, for many of us. Uh, you know, I remember him telling me at one point he wanted to be more like the Guinness of, of uh of brands where you could you know not widely distributed but you could get it pretty much anywhere uh, mm. around the world and uh, you know a, a small distribution and a, and a a novel brand but it, it was uh, you know regarded and and known far and wide and so i think he was sort of uh, leading that that way that you don't have to sell a lot of beer in any one place but you need to you know sell uh sell enough beer and build your your cred of your brand and um, yep. you know, and that was the liquid and the brand imagery. Ken, last question before you, before uh, we wind down this fantastic tap lines episode. And again, thank you so much for joining us, but we've talked uh, about, of course, Sierra Nevada's founding um, in early years. And I think uh, you'd be hard pressed to find someone who understands even a iota of, of how the beer industry works who wouldn't say that Sierra Nevada is one of the most influential breweries uh, that's you know sort of ever ever brewed beer in the U.S. I think uh, it's in that peer group with uh, with another brewery that we've spoken about a lot on this on this episode, which is Anchor Brewery, uh, of course, founded in you know a, a, gosh almost a full century before Sierra Nevada, revitalized under under Fritz Maytag's stewardship starting in 1965. Um, again, one of those sort of like titans, uh, or, or it's in the canon as far as sort of shaping the beer industry. And you've been so generous with your time and, and, uh, and candor to sort of describe how that, how that came to be. New Albion, by contrast, again, doesn't get as much 
uh, doesn't get as much name recognition because it was such a brief moment in time, because it was, um, you know, just kind of this tiny little, little operation. Um, and yet it, it did have some key influence, even just because it was in the right place at the right time. My question uh, with that long lead in here is, in hindsight, we're in 2023 now, reflecting on everything that we've just talked about in this episode. Can you sum up to me like what, what Jack McAuliffe's uh, new Albion, you know, what the influence was, what that significance of that brewery was? Obviously not a commercial success, um, but, but nevertheless part of, part of the fabric of this industry. Tell me, tell me where it fits in for you. Well, I think, you know, if Fritz bought an existing brand and an existing brewery, although the original brewery was quite funky, um, <laughs> right. at, least the, at least the one I saw, um, where I think Jack bridged the, the home brewing to commercial brewing uh, worlds. And, you know, uh, looking at Fritz's place, I, I probably wouldn't have thought I can do this myself. But going and looking at Jack's place, it was, um, you know, a, a very cool homebrew setup. Um, mm. and, and, you know, today there are home brewers that are way more sophisticated than what, what Jack uh, had built, uh, with, you know, temperature control and, uh, automation and a whole bunch of stuff today. That's, that, that were, was not available or certainly couldn't have been, um, uh, afforded by some of the early pioneers. So I think Jack showed that, uh, you know, you can be a home brewer essentially and go pro. And so I think that's what sort of sparked me was that, uh, you know, what he had built was not too far away from my homebrew setup, and I could see how I could take it to the next level and make a 10-barrel batch uh, under the same sort of uh, primitive uh, brewing methodology. Um, and and mm. so I think it just it just showed that there was a path to commercialize a homebrew setup and hopefully make a business out of it. So I, I think it was just a stepping stone of of the fact that the technology didn't have to be that scary and it didn't have to be, you know, gleaming 10,000 barrel tanks like Anheuser-Busch had, which I had obviously toured those big breweries as well. Yeah. Um, but, it, but it just showed that you can do this on a small scale. You can make great beer. Uh, you can do it all yourself and, and uh, you don't need, um, you know, a ton of resources to, to enter the industry um, under those uh, conditions. And so I guess it was probably the nudge just to, to witness what he had, had done and built uh, that uh, allowed me to see my path to opening a commercial brewery. Um, uh, I think if I'd only gone to established breweries, regardless of, of uh, you know where they were, how big they were in the U.S., I would have seen a more daunting um, example and I would not have thought I could have copied that. Well, I'm glad you didn't. I'm sure everyone who enjoys Sierra Nevada Pale Ale and the many, many other beers that have come from the portfolio over the years is glad you didn't get scared off and is glad uh, that you saw Jack McAuliffe's tiny little operation in New Albion and and it made it real for you that you could go on and and uh, and launch Sierra Nevada. Ken Grossman, thank you so much for joining us on Taplines. We really can't thank you enough. This was a treat for our listeners. It's a treat for me, man. Thanks so much for stopping by. Come back come back anytime my pleasure uh, very enjoyable <laughs> all right man Taplines is recorded in richmond virginia and produced by yours truly and darby seaside who along with the talented shane ferrick composed our delightful soundtrack just listen to it i also want to give a quick shout out to the entire vine pair team and especially co-founders adam teeter and josh mallon 
Editor-in-Chief Joanna Sherino, Managing Editor Tim McCurdy, and Art Director Danielle Grinberg, who designed our lovely Taplines logo. And of course, a big thank you to you, yes you listener, for spending time with us week in and week out. We literally couldn't do this without you. I'm Dave Infante, and I'll catch you next time.